Hey, it is great to be back. I have missed studying the Bible with you guys. You guys ask great questions, and uh, it's just great to dive in. Let me say a prayer for us, and then we're going to jump into this lesson. Can't wait to talk about this. Father, we thank you that we live in a country where we are free to study your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the blessings that you have given to us. For in the scope of this world, we are truly blessed people. Please give us a heart to see the needs in this world and give us the faith and the courage to act on it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I know that some of you are thinking uh, this series is called Tongues on Fire, Reading the Old Testament Prophets. And I know that some people, when they hear Tongues on Fire, they think more charismatic kind of things. And uh, so there will be no miraculous healing tonight, as far as I know. Uh, We're going to talk about, but I'll tell you where this comes from in the life of the prophets. But we are going to talk about, uh, here's my thesis. The Old Testament prophets are the model for how we as Christians engage our world. The way the prophets went about doing what they did and who they were is not an accident. In other words, the Old Testament prophets are the model for how we as Christians engage our world. And I'll show you over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the four major prophets in the Old Testament. And I think you'll see that unfolding. And I think even though this is going to be very historical and it's going to talk about a lot of Old Testament history and ideas and what they did, you'll see connections to the gospel. And I think it's going to unfold that you realize, wait a minute, we are modern day Prophets, And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a second. Uh, First, let me start with this. There are four major prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're called major prophets because they got the better book deals. There are 12 minor prophets. Those are the 12 books at the end of, very end of your Old Testament. We're not going to, in four weeks, we're not going to have time to talk about it. We're going to talk about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel in their chronological order as things unfold. But the 12 minor prophets, I put this up here in case you're interested in them. You can find an interesting little lesson complete with maps and history and all that. It's relatively short curriculum. There's a a lesson on each one of the minor prophets at sowespeak.com. So we have that material out there, and you can just go access that. I think you'll find them interesting reading, and I think you'll see that the themes that we talk about with the major prophets are there also with the minor prophets. So that's what we're going to talk about. By the way, let me start by just saying, what is a prophet? Well, we probably have an idea in our head that a prophet is somebody that speaks to God or hears from God and predicts the future. And that's not actually what a prophet is. The Hebrew word for prophet is navi. And the word navi basically means spokesperson. It's a spokesperson. I want you to think about a prophet as being like God's press secretary. So this is sort of the person who is a spokesman for God. So think about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, kind of like a prophet, and probably living as difficult a life as most of the prophets, frankly. But in all seriousness, the word prophet really means a spokesperson. So a prophet is somebody who has been entrusted with a message from God to go deliver to people. So a prophet uh, is someone that speaks for God. Tales of the Nevi'im is the series of minor prophets because the singular, Navi, is prophet, 
the plural in Hebrew is Nevi'im, prophets. So these are the tales of the prophets. And that's why we called that series what we did. So a prophet is someone who takes the message from God and delivers it. Well, you can see how they will sometimes foretell the future. It's not like the prophet was a fortune teller. It's not like there was any ability of the prophet to foretell the future. This is really different from all the magical arts and dark arts. This is basically if God chose to give the prophet a message and that message happened to be, here's what's going to happen, that was because God knew what was going to happen, not because the prophet knew. The prophet is a spokesperson. So understanding it in that way I think will probably help us a little bit to see how we have more in common with the prophets than we thought. There's nothing magical in them that they could predict the future. They simply heard a message from God and delivered it. So a prophet basically is a model for us because they are entrusted with a message to God and they're supposed to deliver the message and live out the message before the people. You could simply say that is what Christians do as well. One thing you'll see about the prophets though, it turns out often that the message God gives them, the truth that he gives them to communicate is not something that the surrounding culture wants to hear. When you think about prophets, you usually think about foretelling the future, and the second thing you think about is, yeah, those guys had a hard life. The reason they had a hard life was because the message they were delivering was not always what the surrounding culture wanted to hear. That sounds like Christians today as well, doesn't it? We're entrusted with a message to deliver it and live it out, and that message, that truth from God, is not always something that our culture wants to hear either. So I think you're going to see that we have a lot in common. Well, I want to take you back in time as we go to our first prophet, Isaiah, and I want to take you back a couple hundred years before Isaiah, and I'll just tell you the story of the history here a little bit. This is the modern state of Israel, but this is Israel at basically the time when Solomon died. So if you remember, go back to about a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. So 1000 BC, King David, David's the king, he's doing great. This uh, whole area there is Israel and he conquers the Philistines and he basically fulfills a lot of the promises God made to Abraham to basically expand this nation. Then his son Solomon, wisest man who ever lived uh, and then did some of the dumbest things anybody ever did you know in his life but he also has success from God and expands it but Solomon wasn't a very good politician at the end of his life and he was even worse dad at the end of his life and so what happened when Solomon died 930 BC just a little over 900 years before Christ there was a bit of a little civil war and so the 10 tribes of Israel, remember the Israelites were made up of 12 tribes, the 10 tribes that lived in the north made their own country and they named it Israel. The two tribes that lived down in the south around Jerusalem made their own country and they called it Judah. And this is called the period of the divided kingdom. And what it basically means is that this is the time period where the Civil War happens, the country splits in the middle, and so you have the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel. And this time is a, is a sad time in uh, Israelite history because actually the, the nation of Israel becomes an enemy 
of the country of Judah. So you have Jewish tribes fighting Jewish tribes. Well, as you move on down through time, these two nations move through the next couple of hundred years. So let's fast forward from 930 BC into the 8th century, the 700s. That's when our story of Isaiah is going to come about. And there's still two nations. There's a king of Israel in the north. There are kings of Judah in the south. Israel in the north has not been very faithful to God. And so you see prophets like Amos, one of the minor prophets in one of those 12 books, speaking to the people in the north, Israel saying, you need to repent. You need to turn back to God and put away all these idols or God's judgment will come on you. And you'll see that happen during the lifetime of Isaiah. So they weren't listening to God. Now Judah had some better kings and they were listening uh, to God a little bit better, but, and being a little bit more faithful. So in this time period, it's a really rich time period. I want to show you just a little bit of archaeology. This 8th century BC, so the 700s, this is when Isaiah lived, this is when our story is, is going to take place. There are really good archaeology from the 8th century. This is a find, a very recent find, um, in the, one of the uh, palaces in Jerusalem, ancient palaces. It was only found three years ago. But this is a seal. And so what they would do in those days is uh, they would take a metal seal and it had a design on it and then you would stamp it you know, into wax or here into uh, clay and then you'd seal a letter with that and that's like your signature. And so the seals had the name of the person on it and only important people had a seal. So kings certainly did, but average people, they didn't. They just used one of those stamps with turn address, you know, kind of things. But they would have a seal. These two were found about 10 feet apart. And one of them is the seal of Hezekiah, who is going to be a king of Israel. And he and Isaiah are going to figure prominently in our story. And the other is a seal of someone named Isaiah. Now, that's dated from this 8th century, this period, and I'm going to tell you the story of the prophet Isaiah, and one of the great events that happens is he and King Hezekiah facing the Assyrians. And so it seems to me it would be impossible to prove is that the prophet Isaiah and the King Hezekiah. I would just challenge you to say it would be the world's greatest coincidence if it were not. And so there's a lot of historicity around this time period. So the Bible gets corroborated more and more as they dig more and more. So I just wanted you to see that this is a recent find and it just corroborates the Bible. By the way, those two seals are on tour where you can go see them and they happen to be at the Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond until sometime in August and it's a free exhibition. So I'm, I'm not... Uh, sponsored by Armstrong Auditorium. We're not paid for this advertisement. I just wanted to tell you, those are, happen to actually be in Edmond right now on a, a tour. So you can see those seals if you want. So King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. Well, in the 700s, the great power in the world was Assyria. Assyria is based in modern-day Iraq, and the Assyrians were really brutal people. people. Our senior pastor, Marty Grubbs, just finished a series on Jonah. And if you remember, Jonah was dealing with the Assyrians. This is the same time period that Jonah happens. 
God tells him, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and tell them to repent. You remember that story. That's happening in this same time period. So I want you to get a sense of these prophets in the Old Testament. They're not just all strung out, because I know they're just strange names to us sometimes. I want you to see that there are a lot of things going on at the same time. So Jonah's trying to get the Assyrians to turn around. Isaiah is going to be prophesying and preaching and delivering his message down in Judah. And this is all going on in the same time period. Well, the Assyrians at this time begin to uh, conquer the known world, but they're pretty much coming into the Middle East. Why? Uh, because they want to get to the riches of Egypt. Egypt is also a power at this time, and Assyria is a power. And so the Assyrians are the strongest, and so they begin to move into the Middle East. They begin to move toward Syria, Israel, that northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. At this point in time, uh, the king, who's probably one of the, I know you probably haven't heard of this guy, but he's one of the most famous kings of Judah, that southern kingdom is a guy named King Uzziah. King Uzziah reigned from 783 to 742, and during his reign, the Assyrians were getting more and more powerful. They're spending all this money on you know, helicopters and tanks and all that kind of thing, because they're getting ready to invade. But Judah had a little golden age then under this King Uzziah, and things just went so well for them. And King Uzziah is interesting story, and this is uh, recounted also in, during Isaiah's time, but it basically, he became so proud and so, you know, just full of himself about what he had done, he decided that not only would he be king, he'd also be a priest. And so King Isaiah went into the temple and offered sacrifices like a priest would and said, hey God, thanks for making me such an awesome guy and blessing our country, and we're just such a great country. And so he came out and the chief priest and some of the other priests, they were called the bold ones. You know why they're called the bold ones? Because they went up to rebuke the king, and you never knew how that was going to go. You know, it's like, is he in a good mood? Is he in a bad mood? Will he have us killed, or will he listen to us? Well, they told him, they said, listen, you have, in your pride, you have overstepped what you're supposed to do. And so Isaiah becomes angry, and he's furious, and he's about to kill the priests, and all of a sudden, leprosy begins to break out on his body. And this is seen by the priests as, you see, you, you have flouted God and in your pride and God has given you this leprosy. And sure enough, he lived, historically, he lived the rest of his days as a leper and never got to go into the temple again because according to the law of Moses, he was, he was unclean, ceremonially unclean, and never got to go in again. And that was the high point, though, in terms of politics and in terms of military power of that southern nation of Judah. After this, he uh, is followed by a guy named, I'm going to shorten this a little bit, uh, but by a guy named Ahaz. And so here's what happens. This is how bad the blood is between Israel and Judah. And so after he dies, Ahaz takes over in Judah. And so Israel in the north and Syria, which is still Syria, and they see the Assyrians coming and they're getting really powerful and they're saying, you need to send us taxes or we're going to come down there and just destroy your place. Well, they didn't want to pay the taxes. So Syria and Israel said, let's rebel against Assyria. I think we can stop these guys. And so they go to Judah and they say, we want you to join us. Well, Ahaz says, no, I do not want any part in 
picking a fight with Assyria. Those guys look too tough, and they are brutal people. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. So he said, we don't want any part in that. So Israel said, fine, we'll conquer you first. So Syria and Israel invade Judah. And they get to Jerusalem, and they besiege Jerusalem. And so Ahaz goes, oh my goodness, these guys are going to take over my kingdom, and then they're going to rebel. Who can I turn to? I could turn to God. Oh, not Ahaz. You know, he's not a godly guy. So what he does, he picks up the phone, and he calls the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, and he says, hey, it's me, Ahaz, down here in Judah. Hate to tell you this, but these guys are rebelling against you. Here's the deal. Why don't you come down and attack them in the rear while they're trying to fight me, and then leave me alone? I'll be happy to pay you the tribute. The Assyrians are like, Bonus, we were planning to come conquer you guys anyway. And so they come down and they conquered Syria and they conquered Israel and they left Judah alone. And they began to pay these really heavy taxes. Well, over time, the people decide, look, we're paying a lot of taxes and there's still potholes in our road. In other words, all our money is going off to Assyria. I think we should rebel. And so a king named Hezekiah comes to the throne. And Hezekiah, uh, I'll show you in just a second, him and his reign, but he comes to the throne. And on the one hand, he realizes Assyria is hugely powerful. On the other hand, he realizes they're bankrupting his country. And so he has a real dilemma on his hands. Well, let me pause and let's bring Isaiah into this. When King Isaiah dies before the drama begins with Assyria, that's when Isaiah gets his call to go be God's messenger. And I wanted you to read this out of the text. In Isaiah chapter 6, this describes the calling of Isaiah when he, God told him, here's what I want you to do. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, meaning I had a vision of God in heaven, the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were seraphs, these are angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. This sounds a little like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? This is that same kind of apocalyptic communications. They're trying to send you a message in these symbols. And so I, Isaiah, when I saw this, I said, oh no, woe to me. Woe to me means I am in deep trouble. Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What does he mean by that? Does he mean he had a problem cussing? No. What he meant was, He's a man whose speech and actions are not holy. I mean, when you see the holy God, you realize, okay, I'm not that holy. He says, oh, no. He says, I am undone. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But then one of the angels, one of the seraphs, flew to me with a live hot coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. This is the calling of Isaiah. This is the tongues on fire. There's a sense with a prophet 
that, uh, I love that vision of touching the fire to his lips and that's made him clean. And from that time on, he's dedicated, come good times, come bad times, to deliver the message that God has given him to deliver to the people and to live it out. That is so like the New Testament image of what a Christian is. You have been, your sins have been atoned for. You are clean and you have been given a message to take to the world. I want you to see that these prophets literally are the template for what Christians do in the world today. So that's Isaiah and he begins to go out and he begins to prophecy and so he goes and he sees Hezekiah in the temple or in the temple and in Jerusalem in his palace and he said to Hezekiah, you have a big problem. And Hezekiah says, oh, tell me about it. You know, I got these Assyrians who would love to conquer us. I got these people that say we should rebel against them and I really don't know what to do. Well, about this time, the people get the better part of this. And so Hezekiah stops paying the tribute and starts using the money to feed his people and do that. Well, when the accounts receivable department of the Assyrians realizes these guys stopped paying the bill, they get an army together and off they go. This map is from about 704 BC. So in about 704, the Assyrians already conquered Syria, already conquered that northern kingdom. So now they're going to go and they're going to do the same with Judah because he quit making his monthly payments. Looks like we might have a question and I know I've done a lot of history here. So let me pause and see if maybe something we need to clarify. Just a couple of questions. In other cultures and religions, there are oracles. Would a prophet have a similar status to an oracle, even though they're not a fortune teller? And did the people see them as special or set apart? Great question. If you didn't hear it, other cultures and other religions had things called oracles, which, by the way, is fascinating, but I'll try to keep this really short. Uh, oracles, would, did prophets serve the same kind of function? And did people see prophets as being somebody special? Great questions. Number one, an oracle is a very different thing than a, than a prophet. For example, in most of the other religions, you would go into the building and you would talk to the oracle. The oracle is a person, and the person is going to basically transmit a message from the gods. So I suppose in that sense it could be. But oracles, typically, you would go solicit the message and you would make offerings to the God and you would pay a lot of money to the priests and then the oracle would give you a prediction or an answer to a question uh, that you might be looking for. And oftentimes the people who were serving as the oracle, this priestess, usually uh, females, but they would be the priestess and so they would go into some kind of a trance. I know this is getting long-winded, but this is really interesting. Uh, it, it ties into the whole idea of speaking in tongues, by the way, in, a, in an interesting sort of way. But anyway, you would go into the oracle. This person would go into an ecstatic trance and utter things that sometimes made sense, sometimes didn't make sense, and you were supposed to kind of interpret that. So as you can see, the prophets weren't anything like that. You didn't have to go ask them. They're going to come tell you what God has to say. And they didn't go into trances and they weren't giving you real cryptic messages. They were just kind of delivering the message. So that's a great question. There is an oracle tradition in many cultures, but it's really different than this prophetic tradition. Would people have thought prophets were special? Yes, they thought they were weird. 
And there's, I mean, seriously, they didn't say, oh, there's the prophet Isaiah. Oh, come on in, pastor. Sit down in the front row. You know, why don't you come over Sunday for lunch? It wasn't quite like that because most of the time they're communicating truth from God that you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to hear that. Most of the prophets were killed, beaten, hounded, etc. In other words, they, they really were thought to be, you're a little out of step with the times. By the way, does that not sound like Christians a lot of times in modern culture is that we're out of step with the time. You ever heard about Christians are on the wrong side of history. You guys need to get with the program and go along with where the culture's going and Christians go, I can't do that. I've got a message that I have to deliver. Very much like a prophet. Great questions. Um, a couple of questions on the symbolism. Is there a significance to the six wings on the seraphim? That's a good question. Are there significance to the six wings on the seraphim? There is a different theory on that for every commentator. Uh, so no one knows exactly what the significance is. But you do see some pretty symmetry, two, two, and two. And you'll see them again in Ezekiel when we get there. But no, I, there's nothing that I would make a major point out of about that. Good question. Do you know, do you know of it? Do you know of a visual resource that you could recommend that provides a timeline of world and biblical history for, to put things in perspective? A timeline of the world in this time period? Yeah, I'm going to try and give you things in chronological order, but I realize sometimes that's hard to see. Most study Bibles have charts that are chronological. I have the hardest time finding good material that's not copyrighted that I can show you timeline-wise, but I'll see if I can do something for this little period. But a lot of study Bible, what a study Bible is, is it's just the Bible. It's like the New International Translation or the English Standard Version Translation. I happen to like the ESV Study Bible a lot, but there are a lot of good study Bibles out there. What they do is they'll have a little commentary at the bottom of the page to maybe help explain what the text is saying. But what they're really good for is they have maps, they have chronology, little timelines in there. So I'd say go to a bookstore and look at a couple of them and see, because I know it's, it's a lot easier when you can put this in chronological order. That's a good question. So I'd say start with the simplest resources, a study Bible. Good question. So basically, they get on the march. A guy named Sennacherib. Sennacherib, interesting guy. He, his dad was uh, the king of Assyria, and his dad was pretty stout guy. He was pretty powerful, pretty ruthless. And when he died, Sennacherib comes to the throne. Two things happen. Whenever a new guy comes to the throne, everybody rebels and says, hey, let's see if this guy can handle it. Sennacherib was kind of a wimp. He was not the man his father was. And so everybody goes, he's weak. We're all going to rebel. And so Hezekiah says, well, I think I'll just stop making payments and see if anybody notices. Well, they noticed. So Sennacherib comes with his army in 704. He destroys, I mean, they, these guys were brutal, and they were really good at warfare, 46 different towns as he goes down through here, and he deports all the people, takes all the people away. That's one of the things the Assyrians did, is when they conquered you, they shipped out about half your people and relocated them halfway across the world. So he conquers this place called Lachish. Lachish is important. By the way, you can go to Lachish now. When we first started doing Israel trips a few years ago, you couldn't get into the fortress at Lachish. They were still excavating. But as of last year, you can go in there. So that's still around. Uh, it needs some, you know, total home makeover, but it's still around. 
Lachish sits, you can't tell this from this map, but this is a valley right here. That's a great place to march an army. Lachish is the last fortress before you get uh, to Jerusalem. And so they're down at Lachish, and Sennacherib is camped out at Lachish. You can read this story, by the way, in the book of 2 Kings, the second book of Kings in the Old Testament, chapters 19 and 20, tell you this little story that I'm going to tell you right now, and tells it in more detail than I will, but it's great. So Sennacherib camps at Lachish, takes one of his generals, a guy with a title called Rabshakeh, this odd name, but he takes this general and he says, why don't you go on over to Jerusalem, tell Hezekiah, I'll be happy to take his unconditional surrender whenever he would like. And so this guy goes and he begins, he sits there and he begins to talk in Hebrew to Hezekiah and his officials on the wall and all the people are in there and they're all sealed up in there. They're ready for a siege and a siege is a bad deal in those days. You could get really hungry and really thirsty. Now Hezekiah has made a lot of preparations, but even so, there's no way they're going to stand against the Assyrian army. It's just a matter of time. And so this guy's taunting him and said, hey, don't you think you can trust in your God? Because every one of these other kings trusted in their God. You see where they are now? Yeah, they're dead and we're in charge. So, hey, people, you guys probably better just give this thing up now. If you give it up now, we won't kill very many of you, right? So you want to give up. And so that's how they did it. They, were, they expected him to surrender. So Isaiah, who's in the town with him, he's holed up there with him, comes to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah says, oh no, what are we going to do? And I'm just going to shorthand this, but you can read the exact wording in 2 Kings 19 and 20. And, Hez and Isaiah says, the Lord says, this is going to work out fine. Do you trust him or do you not? And so Hezekiah goes back and says, nah, we're not going to surrender. And the guy says, this is the worst mistake of your life. And so he, he says very offensive things. And Hezekiah turns around, he goes into the temple of God and he prays. And he said, God, we have no hope. These guys are too powerful. And listen to them insult your name. God, you really need to show up and help us or we are doomed. Well, he knew they were doomed and they weren't just doomed. Let me show you a couple of interesting things about the uh, Assyrians. This is a carved into stone. It's called a relief. It, they're taken from the palace of Sennacherib in Assyria. So in other words, they were taken from Iraq in the past, and like everything else in the Middle East, they're now in the British Museum. And so this is a scene in, uh, off one of these pieces of stone, which you can, if you want to go to the British Museum, you can see these. Fascinating. This, is, the translation of this is Sennacherib, the mighty king, he's the guy sitting on the throne, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish. So he's camped out at Lachish. He goes, my town now. He's sitting there in judgment before the city of Lachish. I give permission for its slaughter. And sure enough, they did. That's a Hebrew. The guy on the left standing in front of it is a Semitic guy. That's an Israelite. That's a Hebrew. And he basically says, destroy Lachish. Let me show you a couple of other uh, carvings from the same area. I mean, it's like long, long, long carvings that were, came out of his, uh, basically he would walk around in his castle looking, oh yeah, I conquered them. Oh, conquered them. Ooh, that was particularly good. You know, just really a tribute to himself. The one on the left 
shows scenes that were carved from the conquest of Lachish, this exact event that we're talking about. Those guys in the middle there are being impaled. Oh, this, by the way, this is PG-13. I forgot to tell you that. So these guys are brutal. They wanted to be as brutal as they could to intimidate everybody else so they would surrender. But they would basically take these long, sharp poles and they would impale them. And you could live for a while and it wasn't pleasant and it was just... Horrible, but that's what the scenes are of what the Assyrians would do. On the right one, you see those guys stretched out like that? This was an Assyrian specialty. It was just, it wasn't torture for any reason. It's not like they were going to quit if you told them something. They don't want to know anything. They just want to torture you. And so he had it memorialized, carved in stone. Those guys are being flayed alive. Flaying means to cut your skin off. And it was excruciatingly painful. And if you were really skillful, you could keep the person alive until you had cut all their skin off. So I want, by the way, can I do a little detour? Jonah. Remember Jonah said, I am so mad that you forgave the Assyrians. No kidding, Jonah. I mean, that's what makes that story so powerful is he's like, you can't possibly forgive these people. Oh my gosh, but they repented. They said, Lord, forgive us. And God said, I won't destroy you. And Jonah's like, you're kidding me. Do you know what these guys did? So that's kind of the background for Jonah. But these guys were brutal. That happened at Lachish. And Hezekiah knew that's what was going to happen in Jerusalem too. And so when he prayed, he prayed pretty fervently, right, to God. Well, let's see what happened. 2 Kings 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord said. This is Isaiah talking to Hezekiah. He said, I have a message from God, and here's the question. Do you believe it or not? Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake, and for the sake of David, my servant. Remember, David lived 300 years before. Hezekiah is descended from David down through the centuries. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian army. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and headed back to Assyria. He returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. This is really interesting. I mean, think about God intervening in that way. Now, people have tried to explain this like, well, maybe it was a really bad flu. 185,000 people die, you know. I prefer to just take it at face value and say, the Lord killed these people. And this is a sign to the world. But this, so Hezekiah, as, I mean, this is the most unlikely thing. When Isaiah is saying to you, by the way, this guy won't even enter the city, he's like, Really? Did you see the 185,000 guys outside? You know, so this is a test of faith, isn't it? And yet this is what happened. Historically, can you tell, did it really turn out that way? Well, number one, you know that Jerusalem wasn't destroyed in 701 BC, when this, by the way, that's when this happened, 701 BC. Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. Well, when Sennacherib went back to his uh, palace in Nineveh, in Assyria, he put up what's called a stela, and this one's called a prism because it's got multiple sides. That little chicken scratching on there is writing. 
So it's ancient writing, cuneiform writing. And what he did was he gets this stone thing and it's a way to record your exploits. And when you read this, it says, I conquered this place, I conquered that place. I was remarkably brilliant in conquering this place. I mean, it was a combination between having your own self-serving Twitter account, you know, your own PR machine, right? As well as recording your exploits. They'd parade this around and say, hey, you want to know what our king's been doing? Conquered them, conquered them, conquered them, conquered them. Really conquered them. You know, I mean, that's what it is. It's just a record of his tribute. But when it gets to Jerusalem, here's what it says. And I'll have to do this from memory, but this is really close to what it says. It says, I conquered this, I conquered this, I conquered Lachish, and I cooped up Hezekiah in his city like a bird in a cage. And that's all it says. The fact that it doesn't say, oh, I destroyed Jerusalem too, that's just pretty good evidence because believe me, if he had destroyed Jerusalem, he was going to put it on there. But he doesn't. But he's still got to brag. He said, I cooped him up like a bird in a cage. Could have had him if I wanted him, but I decided to go home, had a tea time, needed to get back to the golf course. Yeah, I mean, think about that. That's really pretty good archaeology to, to corroborate what the Bible is saying. So that's how that story ended. So I realize we uh, only have a few minutes left, so that's kind of the period of Isaiah. And Isaiah is prophesying, and when I say that, I mean he is preaching the messages God gave him all through these decades where all this geopolitical stuff is happening and when this event is happening. This isn't even the most dramatic thing that happened to Isaiah, but it's just amazing things happening. This is Isaiah, the time period in history when he was talking. And I do want to draw a couple of interesting lessons out of just this history and Isaiah's involvement in it. Uh, one of them is this. Faith is not a private thing. Faith has to act itself in our, out in our lives. Think about what happened with, remember I told you Ahaz, the Assyrians, uh, basically his neighbors were attacking him. Instead of turning to God, he turned to the Assyrians and said, hey, come help me. And they did, and they conquered him, you know. I mean, it's like, don't let the camel get his nose inside the tent, or the next thing you know, you got a camel in your living room. And so that's what he did. He didn't trust God, he trusted his political alliances. Hezekiah had that same choice, didn't he? He could have turned to Egypt and said, you know, my best bet is to get the Egyptians to come help me and I'll just start paying them money instead. But Isaiah said, Hezekiah, do you believe in God? And Hezekiah says, oh, I do. I have faith. He had a personal faith, didn't he? But Isaiah didn't stop there. He said, well, Hezekiah, I need you to put your faith into action. And Hezekiah stops and he goes, well, I personally believe in God, but I'm not sure that I believe in God in the political realm. I mean, come on, you don't expect me to take this seriously, do you? And Isaiah said, well, in fact, I do. And in fact, God said, you trust him and he will work in all things for good. I'm quoting the New Testament now. So Hezekiah had a personal faith and what Isaiah is challenging to do is, will you have faith in the political world? Will you have faith in the economic world? And that same is true for us. It's not enough to have a personal faith. Faith has to act itself out in our lives. In other words, trusting God has to be more than a set of beliefs or assent. It has to work itself out so that when someone looks at Hezekiah, you'd say, that dude really trusted God. And can, will people look at you and me and say, those people really trusted God. They act like they trust God. I think that's one of the messages you'll see over and over is the prophets are calling people not just to believe in God, but to 
act like they believe in God. Well, Hezekiah is a very dramatic story. Maybe yours and mine are smaller stories. Maybe we're not about to be annihilated by an Assyrian army. But the point is that dramatic story really makes that point, doesn't it? One of the great lessons in this is our faith has to act itself out. Second is a little more philosophical, but I want you to watch this thread. This thread runs all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. It looks like the political powers of the day determine the course of history. In other words, if you pick up the paper today, you're like, okay, is China going to win the trade war or are we? Is North Korea going to get a intercontinental ballistic missile and be able to put a nuclear warhead on it and what kind of threat is that? It looks like the political leaders, the military leaders are dictating the course of history. But the prophets, every one of them are basically saying God is the ruler of history. They may think they are dictating history, but God is actually dictating history. And so Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, I know that Sennacherib looks like the really powerful guy here, but he's not really pulling the strings. He thinks he is. God is pulling the strings. God is the one that's working through history to bend it to his will for the good of his people. Do you believe that, Hezekiah? That's really what he's asking. What did Jesus come and ask you and me? He said, it looks like he said, and it's really going to look like it when they nail me on this cross. You, it looks like the Roman Empire. It looks like the political and military leaders are pulling the strings in this world. He said, but do you, would you believe me if I told you God's pulling the strings in this world? They think they are, but God is really in charge. That is the message of the cross. When Jesus said, if you believe me, what does he mean? He means, do you believe that? Do you believe that God really is sovereign over the world, even though it looks like those powers are so big? That's what the Old Testament prophets were saying. That's the same thing Jesus asks us. Do you believe this? So you get this idea of God's sovereignty in bending all of history. And as we see the scope of history, it's going to be very encouraging to you. Because if God is able to bend history around the great powers of the world, he can bend your and my future to truly work in all things for good. If he can do that on this scale, he can certainly do that for you and me. And I hope that that's encouraging as you and I face our Assyrian armies in our day-to-day -day life that we'll remember. That looks really powerful, but actually God is the real power in this situation. Powerful message from the prophets. I think it's just as timely uh, today. Well, let me give you a couple other things because I want you to see, I'm going to give you some excerpts from Isaiah, how it connects with the gospel. Listen to these different ideas and see if they don't sound very much like the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 5, this is God speaking to the Israelites who haven't been very faithful. He said, I will sing for the one I love. This is a pretty passage, so I'll read it all. A song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. This is God preparing the world, the promised land for his people. He says, I dug it up, I cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines, built a watchtower, cut out a wine press out of solid rock, and then I waited to see if good grapes would come. Israel is the vine. And God said, I have done everything to care for you. Now I want to see good fruit come from this vine. And so I waited, but it yielded bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, 
who's right here, you or me? What more could I have done for you to nurture you and take care of you? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield bad grapes? Now I tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge, and it'll be destroyed. I'll break down its wall, and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. And now skip down a little bit. Verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and is the men of Judah and are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. This passage tells you exactly what God's looking for. He said, I cared for you, Israel. I gave you the promised land, and I asked for fruit. And what did he mean when he said fruit? I wanted justice. I wanted righteousness. I wanted compassion. And yet, what do I hear? Bad fruit. I hear oppression. I hear violence from you. Think about John chapter 15. Jesus is saying, I am the vine and you are the branches and every branch that bears fruit, uh, I prune and nurture and every branch that doesn't bear fruit, is, it's you basically prune those off and use them as firewood. Exactly the same idea. God expects fruit from us. What kind of fruit? Not fruit. Sometimes we think of fruit as, oh, I gotta go save a bunch of people. Really, when he's talking to Israel, he said, I want to see you live out my message. Justice, compassion, righteousness. In other words, do right. You know, love mercy. In other words, go be salt in the world. In other words, the message of Jesus and the message of Isaiah are the same thing. God hasn't changed who he is. He hasn't changed what he wanted. This is the same thing. Here's another passage. Different theme. Then Isaiah said, here, house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. I'm telling you this one because this is such a great little Christmas thing. This, should, this passage is quoted in the New Testament about the birth of Jesus, but it actually is prophesied. It was actually spoken 700 years before by Isaiah, giving this message God gave him. He said, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, in other words, before he's out of his toddler stage, two-year-olds have no idea what's right and wrong. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike anything you've seen. He will bring the king of Assyria. And so he's talking about the idea of judgment coming. And yet at the same time, you, you get this idea of God himself caring about the people and coming to the people. This is the context of that passage about Emmanuel. Another one, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has been completed, her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. Remember this from the New Testament? This is, John, this is what John the Baptist quotes. So what's the context of this? Israel is, is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And he said, you were unfaithful and this is your judgment. Now, in those days, God's executing all of this on the earth as kind of a foretelling the cosmic story of Jesus, that there's judgment for what you have done. He says, but even so, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, 
a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the wilderness a pathway for our God. In other words, even in the midst of hard times and destruction, the Lord knows about you, cares about you, and if you will turn to him, he will bring you back. He is sending one to get you and bring you back. That's what Isaiah is saying to the Israelites in 700 BC, also foretelling what Jesus would do on a cosmic scale, to come to all of mankind and say, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness and I have come to take you home. So you see what's happening in Isaiah's life and Israel's life is all about foretelling the gospel. Another one. Uh, who has believed our message and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And this is from Isaiah 53, and I won't read the whole thing. This is that beautiful messianic passage. He's clearly now talking about who is going to come rescue you. This is, if you read it and you go, oh my goodness, that's written, that's spoken, written 700 years before Jesus. That is a description of what happened to Jesus. No kidding. God knew what was going to happen with Jesus, and he said, Israel, I love you, I care for you, turn back and I will redeem you. And he, so he begins to give this message about this person that's going to come. He said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. He took up our infirmities, verse 4. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment on him has brought us peace. I mean, we read this and say, oh, that is... Isaiah prophesying about Jesus, but he's also speaking to the people at the time. It's true at the time, and it's true later. So you get in Isaiah, you get this message of God expects fruit, that's a New Testament message, that God will bring judgment, but God gives hope. God himself is willing to come and give us hope. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This passage is also quoted. Jesus says this. When John the Baptist is in prison, he's about to be killed, and he sends word to Jesus, are you really the one? I came to prepare the way, but here I am in prison, and this isn't working out right, and you're about to go to a cross. Are you the one? And Jesus quotes this passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Messiah means the anointed one. Christ means the anointed one. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm going to stop there because that's where Jesus stops. He said, you just go tell him, you see this happening and you remember Isaiah? Isaiah was telling the Israelites in 700 that even when the Assyrians come, even when you get conquered, your God will bring you through this. Your God, the day of the favor of the Lord, he will restore you. And Jesus is saying, that is now happening. What Isaiah said 700 years before to the Israelites is now happening on this cosmic scale. What Jesus doesn't quote is the next piece of that, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Because, and here's the really interesting thing. I don't know if you ever thought about this because sometimes we as Christians get the gospel half right. God is love, Jesus came to die for us, and end of story. End of part one. Then you read Revelation and you realize, oh, Christ is coming again. What happens in part two? 
the day of vengeance of our God, judgment day. Remember Jesus talking about separating the sheep and the goats and the narrow gate and the wide gate. There's always this message about, do you believe, do you rebel? And so God came first to seek and save the lost. The second coming of Christ is always described as judgment. And that verse will come true at the second coming. Does that make sense? Jesus stops there because he said, I have come to seek and save the lost. When you meet Jesus in Revelation, he says, I have come to dispense justice, judgment. Final thing, this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. Verse 14, when you see this, your heart will rejoice. You will flourish like grass. Verse 15, see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men and many will be those slain by the Lord. That language is literally picked up in the book of Revelation. And so you see the two pictures and this is a truth that you find all through Jesus' ministry and that is there are those who turn to God and there are those who continue to rebel. And so in the end, Jesus said, everyone please repent because judgment is certain. In fact, without judgment, there's no justice. Without that justice, you don't have a God that's really believable. So as Isaiah looks at this, and I just wanted to pick out a few passages. By the way, Isaiah has 66 chapters. So we would have been here all night trying to go through all of them. But I want you to see certain segments. Isaiah is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament because what was happening in this time period, this test of faith and trusting in God and whose side are you on? Are you with God or are you with the world? Really mirrors your and my situation in 2018, doesn't it? Christ is still giving that same offer. And he says, as sure as judgment happened to them, it will happen to us. And as sure as they had the hope because of the Messiah, you too have that hope. So I wanted you to see some of the themes that connect the gospel. All of the prophets foretell and foreshadow Jesus. But the brilliant thing is they do it in the time in which they live. That makes sense? That's Isaiah in a nutshell. Eighth century BC. Next week, we're going to move forward about 120 years. So rest well, that's a big journey. But basically, 120 years later, and let's see what happens to Judah after they've been rescued from the Assyrians and they've been faithful to God. 120 years later, they meet another test. Will they pass or will they fail? Next time I want you to meet a guy, this will probably give you a clue. Jeremiah is prophesying about 120 years later. He's called the weeping prophet and not because he had chronic depression. Things are going to get ugly next week. Thank you guys very much.